Uh, let's just pray before we open up God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open up this passage, as we read these verses from the Gospel of Matthew, that you would speak to us. Uh, we pray that we would have hearts that are open, uh, that are ready to listen to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning then, we will consider uh, some encounters with Jesus, some encounters uh, that take place in Matthew, or recorded for us here in Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 18 through to 26. There are three encounters within these verses, uh, each of them different, uh, all of them um, in many ways the same. Have you ever despaired? Do you know what it is like um, within the circumstances of your life to feel overwhelmed, uh, to feel beaten down by all that life has to throw at you? I'm sure everybody here from the youngest to the oldest, has felt, at least at one time in their life, a sense of despair. Uh, Perhaps you even feel despaired this morning. Uh, Perhaps your illness despairs you. Perhaps you are despairing over a relationship which is not as it should be. Or a wayward child. Or your employment. Well, one of the greatest ways that the gospel has been uh, undermined in the world over the years is the notion that the Bible is just a dusty old book with no relevance uh, to modern life, to people. But this is God's word. This is God's revelation of who he is. And as Christians, as a local church, we stand on this truth. And in these verses this morning, we have a stark and a clear reminder that God's word, that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us in our trials and our tribulations. Jesus speaks to us even in our despair. Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, was intimately concerned for those he encountered. And as we read uh, the life of Jesus, and we consider the encounters which are revealed to us throughout the Gospels, we can be assured that the way in which Jesus speaks to these men and women, these children, reflect the exact same way that Jesus cares for us in our lives today. In this passage from Matthew 9, we see a remarkable double healing, Um, as Jesus encounters firstly a man and then a woman, both in the midst of terrible despair. And we see an incredible healing because of their faith. And the faith that is demonstrated by these two individuals is the exact same faith that we are called to have in Jesus. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith. So our first encounter this morning is the troubled father. Uh, Throughout the narrative of Matthew, um, evidence has been continuing to mount that Jesus of Nazareth is no normal man. The evidence of the encounters that we read in Scripture 
points to the fact that he is in fact the son of God. He is no mere carpenter from Nazareth. Uh, Despite the mounting evidence that is piling up, there are still those who cannot see him for who he really is. There are those who are blind to who Jesus really is. And ironically, those who are most blind are the ones who should see clearest of all. The Pharisees and the priests, um, those who are most intimately knowledgeable of God and his law and his word and his ways, were the ones who most stubbornly refused to see Jesus for who he really is. And they even claimed that Jesus' power, which they acknowledge and they see, despite the very evidence of their own eyes, is a demonic power. Um, In verse 34 um, of chapter 9, we read, The Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So despite everything that they've seen, despite everything that they've heard, they see Jesus' ministry as being demonic in origin. And such a response to Jesus' ministry, the response of the people, the response of these individuals, the response of the Pharisees, caused him to look with compassion. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, um, we've, and I know we haven't been going um, uh, chapter by chapter through Matthew, we've, we've been going through all of the Gospels, but throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew, um, we've seen Jesus encounter a leper, we've seen him encounter a Roman centurion, uh, we've seen him encounter a woman with a fever, um, those that have been possessed by demons, a paralytic, as we read at the start of chapter 9, a blind men. Well, now we see him encounter a man named Jairus. And not any old man. This man is a ruler. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. He was a man of high station and importance. A ruler in the local synagogue and a member of the very body who sought to discriminate against Jesus, who are most hostile to his ministry. I remember from our reading that um, this encounter comes immediately in the aftermath of Jesus' decision to call Matthew, the the very same Matthew uh, who records these words, as one of his disciples. We read in verse 9 and 10, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now the Pharisees were incredulous at this act. How could he do such a thing? How could he invite Matthew, a sinner, a tax collector, no less, to follow him? They they couldn't fathom how a teacher of God could associate with such a person. Uh, Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your sinner eat with tax collectors and sinners? Look at Jesus' response to them. When he heard it, verse 12, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In mercy, he has come for sinners. 
We don't know whether Jairus was exactly there at this point, but we can assume that he must have been. What a chord this must have struck in his head. Not only the reminder that a physician is needed, well, he needed a, a great physician for his daughter, but also the uh, instruction that the greater need is mercy. Mercy for the brokenhearted. Mercy for the contrite. For those who know that they have nowhere else to go and no one else to turn to. And so we meet such a man in such a condition. A man on the very edge of grief and despair. Well, what was the source of his despair? We see in verse 18, he says, My daughter has just died. What a terrible thing to have had happen to him. Um, I don't know if there's anybody here who, um, I'm sure there probably is, that have known what it's like to, to lose a, a child at, at some point, whether uh, as an infant or um, as, as their own child in, in adulthood. What an awful thing it must be. What an awful thing. But what is remarkable about this encounter that Jairus has with Jesus is that despite his despair, despite his agony, despite being broken hearted, Jairus has faith in the power and the works of Jesus. That this Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter, this son of a nobody, is able to accomplish the impossible. Because what does he say? My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, Jesus being able to accomplish the impossible isn't because of the merits of this man. It isn't because of who he is. He hasn't got a special pass that allows him at one point uh, in his life to bring out the free miracle card to Jesus as a, as a ruler of the synagogue. He was in many ways an unattractive person. Yes, he was the ruler or one of the rulers of the synagogue, but these people despised Jesus. They despised everything that he was doing. They despised his ministry, every word he said. So Jairus didn't merit Jesus' favour because of his position. He, he didn't merit Jesus' favour for any reason at all. And he knows that. In fact, we see nothing of the man's authority or presumed importance in his encounter with Jesus. He doesn't come before Jesus and say, I am the ruler of the synagogue. Come and, and serve me. That's not what he says. That's not his actions. Those aren't his words. When he encounters Jesus, he does something remarkable. A ruler came in and knelt before him. It is a father kneeling before Jesus. A father whose heart is broken and full of grief. A father who expresses faith in the works of Jesus. A father who knows that his only hope at this time of great despair, is coming on his knees before Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what a wonderful moment of, of respect and a sign of belief from this man. Why did he turn to Jesus in this way? Um, his peers would have been disgusted with his actions, no doubt. A man of his position kneeling before their enemy, the man they most loathed. Well, was he desperate? 
Certainly. Did he have saving faith? We don't know. That's not clear. Other indications would suggest uh, that he did. But what we do know is this. In his hour of need, in his lowest depth, in his deepest valley, in the greatest moment of his despair, he turned to Jesus. He believed that Jesus would be able to raise his daughter from the dead by simply touching her. He believed, however simply, uh, however simple and however small his faith was, that Jesus was stronger than death. And so, without a word, we read in verse 19, Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Not only Jesus, but his disciples. And uh, as we read from some of the other gospel encounters, uh, Mark in particular, uh, we know that multitudes, the crowds followed as well. They followed Jairus back to his home. And so this request, rooted in faith and belief, is just the beginning of an interwoven story that unfolds over the next few verses. Because we get a second encounter. The chronically ill woman. You see, Jesus and Jairus didn't get very far down the road that they were travelling before their journey was interrupted by a second equally desperate person. Verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. You see, in the midst of the jostling crowds, in the midst of um, all of the, in a sense, excitement, no doubt, um, a woman purposefully encounters Jesus. She puts herself, not quite front and centre, but in a sense, front and centre in encountering Jesus. And again, she is acting out of desperation and despair. A simple desire to be healed by Jesus. She didn't seek an appointment with him. Uh, She didn't feel that she had special privilege uh, to come before him. All she wanted was to touch his cloak. And she believed that in doing so, that would be sufficient to heal her. Now, this uh, account in Matthew doesn't uh, tell us too much about her plight. Uh, But the account we find in Mark adds a little more colour to to the text. We read in Mark chapter 5, A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She'd suffered for a long time. She'd sought many different remedies to relieve her of her affliction. Evidently, she'd heard of Jesus. She'd heard of his notoriety. And perhaps she had something of a magical view of his power. In her desperation, she felt that, well, just by touching his cloak as he passes, she would be healed. And such was a a fairly consistent view in the ancient world. Um, Many people held deeply superstitious views about uh, powerful men. Um, Their power was thought to derive in either their bodily functions or what they wore, their saliva or their hair uh, or their clothes. And so many people at that time believed that merely touching such a man would uh, bring their deliverance 
from their tribulations. That still happens in, in other uh, religions around the world, um, uh, particularly in the East. And so we can see something of the woman's desperation in her actions. Just a glimpse, just a grasp, just a touch of this magical man perhaps could heal her of her afflictions. But the woman also had something else going against her. Because of her condition, because of uh, the, the specifics of her illness, she was ceremonially unclean. So for the last 12 years, not only had she been suffering, but for the last 12 years, she'd become an outcast in the community. She'd been barred from all of the religious ceremonies, from festivities, from fellowship, because of her uncleanliness. And such was the strictness of the ceremonial laws that not only was she barred from participating, all others were barred from touching her. Otherwise, they too would have been deemed unclean. So consider that for a moment. Twelve years without human contact. Now, I'm not the most tactile of people. Uh, I'm not a, particularly a, a hugger, um, a, a firm handshake. I mean, obviously my family. Um, but a, a firm handshake's uh, about as much as I'm willing to go for. Um, but even, even thinking of these things, 12 years. 12 years without contact with anyone. 12 years of... Uh, we understand a, a little bit about it these days with a two-meter social distancing. Twelve years of every street that you turn down, everyone walking away. Twelve years of every house that you enter, everyone leaving by the back door. Twelve years of not being allowed to participate in community, in, in, in uh, gatherings. Twelve years, an outcast. The condition was desperate. Not only physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. This woman who encounters Jesus so briefly, we don't even know what her name is, is a picture of brokenness. She's a picture and a reminder of what it means to be broken. She's a profound example of the balm to the desperate soul that is the healing power of Jesus. She's in a hopeless situation, an incurable position. She is desperate she has no right or intrinsic worth to encounter the Son of God, but her desperation is the seed of her faith. And in her need, she throws herself upon Jesus. Is it a mature faith? No, it's not. Is it perhaps centered in some kind of mysticism or superstition? Yeah, perhaps. But nevertheless, there is a grain of faith. We know that because we see what happens next. Verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Again, Mark's account adds a, a little bit more detail. We read in Mark 5, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? And when she thinks to herself, well, I, I must touch his robe, she's both right and wrong. She's wrong in, in supposing superstitiously that, that those clothes held uh, uh, power that she needed to touch this man. We know that Jesus is able to restore without touching. 
But she's right in that she does need to encounter him. She does need to place her faith front and center. She needs to cry out in hope for his redemptive, saving, and healing power. And she does so knowing that he is able to grant it. Take heart, your faith has healed you. What a picture. This woman may well have been unclean, ceremonially unclean. But in her encounter with Jesus Christ, she is made clean. She is made clean. And, and here's the, the even more marvellous part. Jesus does even more for her than she asks. If you're sitting here this morning and you know what it's like to be in despair, there is no limit to the compassion of Jesus. There is no limit to his power and his strength. There is no limit to his mercy and his kindness and his love. Jesus gives even more than she asks, even more than she hoped for. Because in the midst of this chaotic scene with the crowds pressing in, in the midst of travelling to an even more improbable uh, quest to the house of Jairus, in the midst of, of, of a great heaving amount of people, Jesus not only heals her affliction, but he also restores her relationships. She thought it would be his magical touch that had healed her. But Jesus takes time to stop, to look her in the eye, and loudly in front of all the people, say, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. It might have been a limited faith. It might have been very small. It might have been restored in some kind of, uh, um, it might have been centered on some kind of superstition. But the seed of faith in Jesus Christ is enough to restore a wayward soul. Not only that, Jesus publicly stopping and speaking to this woman in such of a great crowd restored her as part of her community. Her uncleanliness would have been widely known. Now upon Jesus' word, her restoration has been proclaimed. She has been made clean. He gave her far more than what she asked for. Far more than what she, she thought she needed. And so this woman... Just like Jairus, who, remember, is still with Jesus at this point, had every reason to abandon hope. She had every reason to fall into the depths of despair and uh, desolation. But in her own way, realising that her only need at this time of great despair was to come to Jesus in faith. And... The same Jesus that we see encountering this woman here is the same Jesus uh, that we read about uh, previously uh, when he speaks to another woman. And he speaks to this this woman uh, at a well. He says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring welling up for eternal life. Uh, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. Well, the woman on the road to Jairus' house, I, I don't know whether she'd heard those words, but she understood the truth to them. 
In her desperate state, she sought out living water. She drank and she lived. The third um, encounter we have this morning is this. The dead brought to life. So Jairus uh, and Jesus, the disciples, the cohort, continue on towards the ruler's house. Uh, What must have been going through Jairus' mind as these uh, events unfolded? Perhaps, firstly, a bit of frustration that in this pressing need, they they stopped to speak to this woman. Perhaps he thought, time is of the essence, We, we must get there. But also, perhaps, encouragement for him. What an encouragement for this man who, by faith, calls out to Jesus to bring his daughter back from the dead. And on the very journey to get to his house, sees Jesus miraculously heal a lady of, uh, in suffering. What encouragement to him to see firsthand the wonderful and the unique power of Jesus. This Jesus in whom Jairus' hope was placed had miraculously changed this woman's life. And he was still still fully intending to arrive at Jairus' house. Well, when they arrive, uh, they see that the the funeral procession um, had had already begun, uh, the the process uh, uh, of the funeral. Uh, And Jesus encountered a large crowd when he got there. Verse 23, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Um, Well, why flute players and commotion, uh, we might think. That sounds very strange uh, to us. We are used in uh, the, the Western world to funerals being a very solemn occasion. If we think about uh, funerals in our mind's eye, we're thinking of well, very often everyone wearing black, a slow procession of, of vehicles, um, a quietness. But it was custom, uh, customary amongst the Jewish people at this time um, that whenever uh, anybody died, to respond in this manner. The mourning was public and not private. Uh, When there was a death, even the very poorest families were expected to hire uh, at least two flute players and one professional wailing woman. It was a reminder that no one grieved alone. It was a reminder that grief was collective in the community. And because Jairus was undoubtedly a man of wealth, he clearly had the luxury of hiring a number of flute players, and a number of wailing women. And Jesus immediately, upon seeing this, uh, this commotion, sent the crowd away. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Well, what a remarkable thing. What a remarkable thing. Those attending the deathbed of, of this young girl, those taking part in the mourning and the, the wailing, immediately shift to derision and laughter. They knew who Jesus was. They'd heard all about him. They knew that he could heal afflictions and diseases. They perhaps heard of his power over wine and food and, and even his power over the waves. But not death. Not death, they thought. It's one thing to to heal um, a man of their affliction. It's another thing uh, uh, to uh, be able to turn water into wine. But not death. Death is final. Well, the the gospel accounts are full of examples of those who misunderestimated and, and misunderstood Jesus. People thought he was a prophet. Matthew 21, they said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. That's who he is. Almost like a job title. 
Jesus from Nazareth, the prophet. The people wanted to reduce Jesus' power and authority to a, to a manageable and an understandable size. Well, how often do we see that today? How often do we see a diminishing of who Jesus is? Jesus was a good man, the world says. He was a great teacher, the world says. He was full of wisdom and insight, the world says. Jesus was just a prophet, the world says. But power over death? Don't be absurd. Well, Jesus is indeed a prophet. But he's also the great high priest. He's the one who is able to offer sacrifice for our sins. He's also the eternal king who reigns with all power and all authority over all creation. And that same power allows Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to raise the girl from death as if she were merely sleeping. Matthew tells us, verse 25, When the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl rose. Despite the mockery and the derision, the crowds uh, were pushed outside. And no doubt that was at the uh, insistence of Jairus, um, who still held a, a keen faith in what Jesus was able to do. Well, despite the mockery, despite the derision, despite everything that Jesus faced, he was able to bring this girl back to life, to restore her, to have victory over death. And there was no fanfare. There was no theatrics, there was no razzle-dazzle, there was no magic spells, there was no uh, big bangs and, and great excitement. Because of the faith of her father, the girl is raised by the hand of Jesus. The despair is wiped clean. Their hope had been met. And because of the remarkable encounters on this day, firstly of Jairus, secondly of this woman, and thirdly of Jairus' daughter, verse 26 we read, and the report of this went out through all the district. Because of these encounters that were had with Jesus Christ, these events went out across the region. No one could keep them secret. There was no hushing them under the carpet. A miracle of this magnitude could not he kept silent. And the ministry of Jesus was about to accelerate as the purpose of his incarnation became clear to him. Well, let's finish with some applications from these encounters uh, this morning. Uh, let's draw some applications from some of the people that we have met. Firstly, from Jairus. What can we learn from Jairus today? Well, the power of faith is greater than any earthly power. Jairus had everything. He was a prominent ruler, wealthy, no doubt. But he couldn't escape sorrow. He couldn't escape grief. He couldn't escape loss. He is commended, though, for his faith. A faith which begins like a mustard seed. A faith that has come, despite his occupation, an initial reluctance at best, hatred, uh, more likely, of who Jesus is. That faith that begins like a mustard seed is placed in Jesus. A simple faith that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and has come to do exactly what he is proclaiming to do. God doesn't require a lion-like faith. 
a Jairus-like faith is enough. So if you're here this morning and you are a a Christian, remember these things. We are called to, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. But our salvation begins with the smallest of steps. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the repentance of our sins. If you're not a Christian here today, don't think you have anything to offer. Don't think that you have anything that you can give before God that will secure your salvation. All that is needed is faith in who Jesus is and what he is able to do and what he has accomplished on the cross. A second application comes from the woman. We don't even know her name. But there is something dear and sweet and sincere about this woman. Whilst her affliction was not as permanent or permanent uh, as might have been thought uh, as death, she had struggled for years. She had struggled with physical infirmity, with being cast aside. But clearly, she persevered. Clearly, she persevered. For 12 years, she'd sought an end to her affliction. For 12 long years, she'd sought to be restored to her community. She didn't just sit in her house like a hermit. For 12 years, she'd grieved over her exclusion from the Lord's people, from fellowship, from service, from worship. And she'd strived at every opportunity to be restored. She'd spent all her money. She'd met every physician and doctor she possibly could. And in her desperation, she'd reached out in a weak but a mystical faith that Jesus of Nazareth would be able to do the impossible and restore her. Twelve long years, she had not given up hope. And he did. He restored her. Despite the limitations of her faith, despite her weakness and her insignificance, Jesus restored her. Jesus healed her. Jesus encountered her with his tender, gracious mercy. So this begs some questions for us to ask of ourselves. Do our hearts grieve when we find ourselves excluded from fellowship? Do our hearts ache with the desire to be restored? To be amongst the Lord's people. To be worshipping God as he has called us to do. Of being present in body and spirit. Of praying together. Of singing together. Of being under the word and receiving the word together. Do we desire wholeheartedly to worship God in the manner that he has called us to do? Let us be like this woman. Simple in faith, yet full of desire to be restored. Our final application this morning. What can we learn from Jesus? Well, this passage from Matthew brings us near to the climax of Jesus' mighty deeds. Over the previous chapters in Matthew, uh, we can see that he's demonstrated power over illness and disease, whether simple diseases, chronic illnesses, uh, physical disabilities, power over nature, and now even power over death. Nothing can resist his power and his authority. Jesus is strong and powerful. But praise God, he is also compassionate and merciful. It wasn't by an act of power that Jesus stopped 
to speak to this woman. It was compassion. He cares. He cares for our afflictions. He cares for our desperation and our despair. He cares for people in need. He cares for people like Jairus. He cares for people like this woman. He cares for people like Jairus' daughter. He cares for people like me. He cares for people like you. He cares for those in need. And he offers true and everlasting and eternal hope. That we can be restored. That our afflictions, no matter what they are, can be healed. That our despair can be met. And the glorious truth of God's great redemption plan is this. You might find yourself in physical infirmity or affliction. You might find yourself in great heartache. And perhaps during this life, that is always with you. Uh, Perhaps you go through life with with a chronic illness. Perhaps you go through life with, with chronic pain or great heartache. But the glorious ending of God's redemption plan is that in eternity there will be no pain. There will be no suffering. There will be no loss. There will be no despair. There will only be being present with the Lord Jesus Christ, worshipping him in glory and adoration. So even when times are hard, even when we feel great despair, know that we have a saviour who has secured our eternal place in heaven. All Jesus asks is our faith. The faith of a child, the faith of a simple person, a faith starting off as a mustard seed. That he, and he alone, is the life-giving stream. That he, and he alone, is the bread of life. We all face times of despair. Perhaps you are facing it now. There are people here today, perhaps who are struggling. Perhaps knowing what it's like to, to have a disease or an illness, to be wrestling with the death of a loved one. A relationship which is breaking or not as it should be. Perhaps a child who's rebelling. But when you find yourself at your lowest, when you find yourself with no hope, when you find yourself full of despair, turn to Jesus. He is the life giver. He is the only one who can make the unclean clean again. He is the only one who can restore the dead to life. Because only he is pure, only he is perfect, and only Jesus Christ is able to defeat death as he did on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these encounters that we've read and the glorious manner in which the Lord Jesus Christ met these individuals. Help us, Lord God, to go away from this place desiring to meet you, desiring to know you more and more. Help us to grow in faith because of who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name.